Shit happens. What are you gonna do? There's no point in ruminating. Hey friends, you're listening to Pada Bing, a podcast that rigorously examines the Sopranos through deep dives, streams of consciousness, interviews, trivia, music, and NBA analogies. I'm Vic Singh, your guide today. On the agenda for this podcast is walking like men and women and people at large through the 82nd episode of The Sopranos and all things adjacent and appurtenant to it. This one was a lot of fun to assemble. So I hope you enjoy it as much as I did putting it all together. Walk Like a Man originally aired on May 6th, 2007 and was written and directed by Terrence Winter, his directorial debut, which got me thinking about other directorial debuts throughout history. Who knows, maybe some source material for some other subject matter I'm looking to rigorously examine in a new project, something I'm tentatively calling The Regularness. I'll have more on it later, but for now, there's a lot out there, and it's easy to miss. To attempt to solve that, think what we did with Pada Bing, but extrapolated across other subject matter. Stuff that gnaws at me, like The Sopranos does. As with Pada Bing, it's first and foremost an outlet and exercise to keep me creatively fluid. But I'd love if you'd come along so we can continue our journey into whatever the fuck together. So, a selected list of other famous directorial debuts that were, uh, you know, worthy of being in the same company as The Sopranos. If you know them, play along like it's trivia. Cecil B. DeMille over here did The Squaw Man in 1914. There was John Ford in 1917 with The Tornado. Now, we know Junior's not making a Western, but I personally would love to someday. Alfred Hitchcock did The Pleasure Garden in 1925. Our old friend, Howard Hawks, guy was modernity, did The Road to Glory in 1926. W.C. Fields, who Tony once imitated, directed Man on the Flying Trapeze in 1935. And you guys probably already know this thanks to Carmela and her AFI Film Club crew. But Orson Welles did Citizen Kane in 1941. How's that for a directorial debut, huh? Federico Fellini did Variety Lights in 1950. And to my delight, that same year, Yo, Adrian, Burgess Meredith, a.k.a. Mickey Goldmill, directed The Man on the Eiffel Tower. A few more since I'm feeling it, like Jay-Z, in Reasonable Doubt, his debut album, by the way. See what I did there? John Cassavetes did Shadows in 1959. The same year, Francois Truffaut ignited the French New Wave genre with The 400 Blows. Sergio Leone did The Colossus of Rhodes in 1961. Francis Ford Coppola did Dementia 13 in 1963. 
Sidney Pollock's debut was in 1965 with The Slender Thread. Peter Bogdanovich's was in 1968 with Targets. The same year as Scorsese's debut, Who's That Knocking at My Door? First Spike Lee joint, 1986's She's Gotta Have It. I could go on. And again, maybe I'll formalize this into something down the road, but I'll end in the 90s, and as always, with The Sopranos, Steve Buscemi's Trees Lounge of 1996, which stands alone as a great debut by itself, but is mythologized all the more because someone called David Chase saw it, thought the world of it, was able to do something about that, and the rest is history. Incidentally, 1996 was also the album debut for a past Potabang favorite reference, Duncan Sheik. I believe back in Another Toothpick and Eloise. Also, DJ Shadow's introducing, but I've digressed enough already. HBO synopsis, AJ struggles with depression. Kelly's dad is the unwitting catalyst of a new feud between Christopher and Polly. The title, a reference to the Frankie Valley song of the same name. That's about a dad telling his son to get over a girl. This is the second episode named after a Valley song. The other one was, of course, Big Girls Don't Cry. Within the title, I'm also reminded of Vito Corleone, imploring Johnny Fontaine to act like a man. From AJ to Christopher, and even Tony, after his breakdown in Melfi's office later, this episode is all about showing up and doing your best version of Gary Cooper. Especially when you don't feel like it. We open on the painting above Carmela and Tony's bed. Notice today the merged middle and ring fingers on one of the women in the image. A west side gesture of sorts. Tony and his crew, after all, are west side relative to their counterparts across the river. Birds are chirping, a telltale signal of danger. Tony's fast asleep, snoring, labors to get up, but does. We're thinking it could be one of those mornings in front of the mirror, popping pills, looking sideways. But why not make a day of it? He quickly changes course, heads down the stairs, singing comfortably numb to himself. Pink Floyd. The show's not done with that song yet. It's from their album, The Wall. Believe it or not, that was their 11th album. Which makes you think, how many bands actually get to putting out 11 albums? And how many of those 11th albums are actually memorable? Whereas with The Wall, it's not only widely considered their best album by people who decide that stuff, but the album itself is considered one of the best ever, period. Trumped only by their own earlier Dark Side of the Moon. Which, the fact that they even approximated the gravitas of that album with The Wall 
is a feat by itself. Leaving you almost uncomfortably numb. Let's just nerd out on a couple, three of the top 10 bands of all time per generally accepted accounting principles. The Beatles released 12 studio albums. Their 11th was Abbey Road, now one of their best ever. But when it came out, the cover art was more favorably received by critics than the music itself. The Stones, true outliers thanks to longevity, have released 30 studio albums. Their 11th album was Goat's Head Soup, the one with Angie. Led Zeppelin, they only got to eight albums. And U2 put out 14 so far. Their 11th was How to Dismantle an Atomic Bomb. Now, that too was a commercial success and won every Grammy it was nominated for, as that metric matters to a lot of people. But for the life of me, I can't remember one track off that album. And I know that says more about me than the band itself, though it gives at least a little validation to my confirmation bias that 11th outings are generally forgettable. But I've read enough Rick Rubin Instagram quotes to know that sometimes that's how long it takes to make a lasting mark. Okay, back in the Sopranos kitchen, we see a bowl of fruit, but no oranges today. That's a good sign. TC's AJ on the couch watching morning cartoons, completely spaced out. Looks like Tom and Jerry's on. And we immediately pick up that the transference of Tony's depression to AJ is going to be front and center this episode. Tony wonders why he's up so early. He says he couldn't sleep. Meanwhile, we're going to see T asleep like a baby throughout this entire episode. Carmela looks on, worried. She's making French toast, comfort food. Thinks it would help AJ feel better. But he's not into it. Food isn't the answer to every problem, he says. Well, neither was acting like a whiny little bitch. Tony. I'm getting close to having the occasion to drop that one on one of my kids. The question remains, do I have it in me to actually do it? This, of course, is the aftermath of Blanca. He says he lost his fiance, as if she were a fellow traveler with him through a Robert Frost poem. Carm, better to have loved and lost. Lord Tennyson over here. If Bobby's got a quotations book, Carmela's got a book of cantos. Re-energized. For now. A large part of this episode is AJ locating that proverbial energizer bunny to march him out of this malaise. Cut to a queue. Chris's father-in-law, Al, is selling discounted power tools to a line of plainsclothed cops who moonlight as handymen, evidently. Who knew? Well, Lester Freeman was still able to do good police work, as he called it, 
while perfecting and carving little totems. So it's possible. Chris comes by, is introduced to the cops by his father-in-law as a movie producer. With the same pride with which my mom still introduces me to her friends as a lawyer. Anyway, Al gives him an envelope and a hug. This is the well-oiled soprano supply chain at work. As methodical and astonishing as Raul Peck's new series on HBO. Over at the Bing, Chris is counting fat stacks in front of Polly. Pushes over his end, less Chris is cut. Neither one that happy about it. Chris at having to fork it over, and Polly at what he ever so slightly perceives as a disproportionateness in the fatness of the stack. But to keep appearances, they toast business, or attempt to, with club soda. Polly calls that a jinx, black magic. Tells Chris to act fucking normal. Stop being a drip. These days, if you say the word normal, especially in the context of another person, a younger person, you're questioned by child services or some newfangled collective. But for Chris, it's either this or that with Polly. Guy's never happy. Always picking. Always plucking. Now that I've sufficiently conjured up the staccato of a guitar, Chris does his own rendition of a Pink Floyd song. Says, the fuck you want from me? Chris starts to explain himself, but is overshadowed by Polly's signature de-escalation method. I don't get comfy. I'm breaking your balls. Looking at this episode on the whole for a moment, and this is also another example throughout the show at large, the setup. Things always start out good before they get really bad. We just saw it last episode when Tony wanted to gamble away Carmela's spec profits. First, the head fake. Then, the splitting a triple team followed by a tomahawk flush at the rack. How about that move? Un- oh, Anthony Edwards! Put that one on the highlight reel! Cut to Satrials. Tony's having a Coke, but not a smile. Notices Agent Harris dining in the corner again. Goes over. Wonder if he does that every time. Or if sometimes he just lets the guy sit, eat his fucking sandwich, and leave. Harris asks him about Phil, how he feels about it. Harris says he started working in Brooklyn early in his career and never liked Phil. That's why he's curious. Said he tried to frame a rookie instead of taking the rap. What sick fuck? Well, pretty much every person that's ever had a subordinate at some point. That one. T asks about the terror thing, as he puts it. Feeling as if that distraction gives him some sort of protective shield. An invisibility cloak, like Harry Potter, or that adorable little girl that got one from her dad in Crash. Hands down, best part of the movie. But Tony 
always seeing all the permutations, tries to leverage it. If I help you, can I bank the resulting goodwill? To which Harris says he'd write a 5K letter, a document setting forth T's cooperation and service. It'd be placed in T's file, and if he were ever convicted of a crime, it would be presented to a judge when she's considering his sentence. The fancier word for it is a 5K motion, based on the code section of the law on the books in the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure. Quite frankly, it's one of the few laws that's written well in terms of its efficacy and effect. Playing on the emotions of criminals who, probably more than any regular Joe, would rather save his own skin at the expense of another. Here, Tony isn't outright cooperating, but he's bending the rules of this thing of ours, trying to fashion it into something that works for him, but in a way that doesn't discolor or muddy his rep or his narrative with the guys. And for, you know, when he sits down to piece together his memoir one day. The cut to Goddard kind of implies, you sure you want to go down this road? To Harris. As in, you really think we can trust this guy not to shovel us complete bullshit and get us off track from the real elephants we're hunting? Who was it that said that? When you're hunting for elephants, don't get distracted by rabbits? Warren Buffett? T likes the pitch, decides to go for it. He shoots his shot at buying some insurance, sensing his time may be near. Especially after Carmela recently wondered out loud why life's still gotta be like this at their age. He mentions the guys he drove by last episode, the headgear, the beard, the whole fundamental bit. Says they used to be around the Bing, then disappeared off the planet. But not the way Butch meant when he said something similar. But now, all of a sudden, T says he sees them crewed up with these new guys. He emphasizes new, adroitly enough, to pique their interest. Goddard asks, what were they doing? Early seeds of his perfection of the Doug Stamper character. T, (laughs) love this. Walking. It's literal. But I also can't help but think part of him is fucking with them a little just because he can. To slather some seriousness on that role, he calls Chris to get a name. Chris is on his stoop watching Kelly play with the baby. A new visual for us with him, by the way. Idyllic, hopeful, even if only momentary. Sometimes that's all people get. Chris tells him the names, but is reluctant. As in, you giving away my juice? Like, they're my escape parachute. I triangulated them for business first. Which means I get to betray them first, too. But Chris, loyal to his capo, offers up their cell number to T. Recall, and especially relevant this episode, 
the guy he's going to hell for. T scribbles it down. Tells Starsky and Hutch over here. Ahmed Al-Najafi. Oh! With a name like that, Harris and the American public, for that matter, are probably better served if he hands this one off to Kerry Matheson and Saul Berenson. That is, if they're not already the fuck on it. Next, AJ and Blanca are walking through the construction site. A similar premise is the start of a lot of kids' bedtime books, by the way. It's where they first met. Did they make up? Well, he got her to meet up for coffee. Baby steps. What's more, she actually obliged. Optionality. He gets uncomfortable when another guy says hi to her. Great show, don't tell on that. He can't think of anything else to do in the moment. So he gives her a hug and starts crying. Again, apparently it's been a thing. She recoils, says she's got to get back to work. And he walks away bawling. Past a couple of guys, more or less walking like men as compared to him, who find it amusing. To which I always wondered, they know who his dad is? Speaking of, back over on T, who's setting up an after party with a stripper at the Bing. The same one that blew him during a ride home once. Cold Stones. Just then Carmela calls. The precision and timing of narrative dramas, huh? He takes it. She needs him home. It's AJ. She's afraid to leave him alone. Makes you wonder what specifically he did or said that made her take that stance. Inside AJ's room, we see a sugar cult Start Static poster on the back door. Start Static was their third album. There's three. And it doesn't look like they're going to make it to 11, sadly. The album cover features one end of a TRS audio cable, which is oddly satisfying, at least to me. The track list makes the choice of poster for AJ's wall anything but coincidental. You're the one. That's for Blanca. Stuck in America. That's AJ on the internet digesting war propaganda. Hate every beautiful day. That's, it's all a big nothing. Saying goodbye. Now, personally, I'm still partial to Dave Matthews' say goodbye. But sometimes you got to take the best of what's around. They're not done yet with the track list, by the way. Daddy's little defect. It was all downhill after that moment they shared playing Mario Kart together. Lost in you, pretty girl, crashing down. How does it feel? More Blanca. I changed my name for if AJ ever had to go into witness protection. Finally, underwear for when he's on the internet chit-chat rooms, as Tony called them. Okay. Tony knocks, walks in, 
sees him hugging a pillow, tries to pull him out of bed. AJ says he's depressed. She was my life. T says he's 20. She was cute, come on, but you're better off with another guy's kid to boot. An easier thing to focus on than the racial and socioeconomic concerns he and Carmela had. AJ says she was the best thing that ever happened to me. High and dry by Radiohead over here. Sans the beautiful harmonic that's near the lyric. T pulls up a chair, like the grandpa and princess bride. Says this is normal. That word again. Everybody gets the blues. For some reason, that always reminds me of Aaron Neville. But his tune was, everybody plays the fool. Still, I've never been able to get the image of T singing everybody gets the blues, the Aaron Neville way, out of my mind. T says there's a half a billion dollar a year industry devoted to it. The blues, that is. AJ thinks it's mental health. So did I, actually, at first. But T's talking about the music business. And that number, as of 2020, is closer to $6 billion. Then, T lays down a great fatherly track. You're lucky, special, smart. Lots of people would love to be with a guy like you. Plus, you're white. A huge plus nowadays, he says. Whatever happened there? T tells him to go get a blowjob. Fresh, of course, off securing another one of his own from the dancer at the Bing moments ago. AJ screams he doesn't want a blowjob. Tony tells him to keep it down. Why? Who's listening, AJ wonders. Of course, right then, Carmela barrels through the door in a rare, almost overt sitcom television trope. Everything but the laugh track. AJ flips, hugs his pillow, and it's right back to square one. Carmela, you saw her again, didn't you? I knew it! As if calling him out will help. As a parent now, I'm as guilty as her at doing stuff like that. It sadly is like a switch. Born from a clash of the regularness of life and all the shit we have going on around us with trying to cram through optimal, teachable moments or life advice. All while their lives are happening at a lightning speed of their own. You can't possibly keep up with both. And more often than not, the two collide. In this particular collision, AJ, what's the fucking point? Tony, after a long beat, point of what? Is he already seeing where this is headed? Does he believe AJ is sophisticated enough to have those complex existential thoughts and actually act on them in a dangerous way? Outside the room, 
Carm says she was glad when they broke up. The culture divide. (laughs) Thoughtful phraseology. But plenty of space in there to parse out the more acute concerns and labels. But now, it seems that divide isn't so big. Not when it comes to your kids' welfare. Tony weighs in. Everybody turns to shit. Another brick in the wall. Part Tony. Cut to Chris and Kelly's. Note the Cleaver poster in the entryway to their home. Not the back office or a den. Right in the entry. Classy. But hey, it's a miracle that anything gets made, right? So when it does, celebrate it. They're having a get-together, also known as an efficient way to bring back a lot of cast. Tony's sister Barbara and her family show up. Chris goes outside with the meat to fire up the grill something we're more accustomed to seeing Tony do. Outside, Chris notices T and Bobby imbibing and having a chat. The first real glimpse that the pecking order has shifted. Asks from afar if T's okay. Having a good time. T's short, but answers. Bobby's talking to him about some hustle. Guy's not hiding behind that brother-in-law shit anymore. Later, T walks over to the grill to break balls. Wrist action, non-alcoholic tastes like ass. Now, the extent of my qualification to address that is that I once had a friend in a San Diego suburb who made beer in his bathtub. (laughs) But while makers of non-alcoholic brews can come close or adequately approximate their alcoholic counterparts, alcohol itself has a distinct aroma and mouthfeel, or texture, that can't easily be replicated. I know. Anheuser-Busch over here. T likes that he's doing a get-together. Chris says it was all Kelly's idea. Good thing for her, T says, otherwise I'd never see you. That makes Chris defensive. Adding more fuel to the fire, no pun intended, T tells him the steak's done. It keeps cooking, even if it's off the flame. The juices. Best piece of cooking advice I ever got. All those Otto Lange and David Tannis cookbooks, for what? I've been turning grills and stoves off early for years. From eggs to veggies to slabs of meat to cream of wheat for my toddler. Chris says T should understand better than anybody the struggles Chris goes through. Because, drumroll, he's in therapy. He understands the human condition. T's expression back conveys he doesn't love that being pointed out so much. Even if he fessed up about it all those years ago. It hits different when we're told by others what we already know about ourselves. It's not that simple, Chris says. 
We'll make it simple. T does. By comparing Chris's plight with the bottle to his own inability to eat eggplant ever since the gunshot surgery. In all seriousness, eggplant takes a while to grow on you, but once it does, it's tough to cut out. But Chris goes full Gregor Mendel mode on him. I can't. It's a disease. I inherited it. Everything but the beans. You know the problem with my mother, who, by the way, we saw when Barbara came in. She threw her a look. The combination of secrets and thoughts that must be locked up inside of her. Tony says, I know a crutch when I see it. Rich in that it's okay for him to peg shit on his mother, but not anybody else. Then Chris rounds out the parentage, brings up his dad. And T plays dumb at first, which is odd because he's supposed to know that whole story, chapter and verse. Maybe actually that's why he plays it cool here. Chris continues, come on, Tone. Between the Coke, vodka, whatever the fuck else he was squirting up his arm. Let's be honest about the great Dickie Moltisanti. Yes, let's. And therein lies your premise and connection back to the prequel. My dad, your hero. He wasn't much more than a fucking junkie. Completely annihilating, by the way. Everything T just said about him to Melfi. Tony speechless. Can't answer. Rare. He's almost as affected as Luke Skywalker when he learned the truth about his father. I am your father. Cut to Jason Molinaro and little Polly boosting power tools. Just another alternate Thursday for these guys. But wait, boosting power tools from their own customer? Is this all just so Polly can cut Chris out? Just then, Kelly's dad pulls up and draws a gun on them, like a pro. Almost, dare I say, like a soldier. At first, based on the make of the car and the screeching halt, you think it's Polly. Undeterred, little Polly gets him out of it. Very efficiently, de-escalates. Almost like Robert Duvall and John Q opposite Denzel. This is going to end up bad for you, John. There's only two ways out of here. Jail or dead. He reassures Al there was a miscommunication of some kind. Don't make a problem where there isn't one. Speaking of making problems where there isn't one, over to AJ at Beansy's place. Instant, season two, Richie walks into a pizza joint memories. Serving slices, Dido's white flags playing in the background. Oh, the love and affection I have for Dido. True story, that song inspired me to buy a drum sampler the first time I heard it. I still have it. 
He watches as a couple cozies up in between bites of their respective slices. AJ can't take it. Combination of the song and the visual is just too much. He hands his apron to Felix, who's clearing a table, and says he's quitting. Can't stop crying. Forced, but also, the heart wants what the heart wants. I'm leaving. Who? I'm going home. I quit. Why'd you do that? If Dale calls, just tell him I'm sorry. But you're the man here. <laughs> Great fun moment. Felix was played by Mando Alvarado, now a writer. But perhaps even more importantly, the added bonus of now having one of the most bankable names ever. As AJ storms out, we hear an ominous bell and a great touch of that girl he saw biting into her slice, not fully comprehending the damage she'd just inflicted. We can do things to people without even knowing it. Not intentionally, of course, but amazing how that works. The mechanics and wiring that allow that to happen. Cut to Patsy handing Tony an envelope as he's just finishing tucking another one away inside his jacket. God bless the NFL. Patsy says it's due to his son. Once him and Carlo's kids started taking action on campus, he should stay till he gets a PhD. Patsy's a proud dad. The shit he can do with computers, set his mom up with the whole website for her ceramics business. And that was back when you actually had to do some light coding to get up and running. If you wanted that shit to look any good. HTML, CSS. We're talking pre-Squarespace, Wix, and all the other WYSIWYG platforms. He's happy, but faking it. You can see he's thinking about AJ. And that's the contrast we're getting to. Your kid is triumphing, yet you're the guy that counts my receipts in the back of the bank. He manages a, you must be very proud, then says he's got to take a leak. Note to the guy who took a leak in his pool once. Read that as a little bit of a flex. If we're not talking about me, or you're not handing me any more money, we're done here. T goes out front of the Bing, sees Patsy's son. Calls him the golden boy. I just saw the Biggie doc on Netflix. Missed the mark, but still an enjoyable hour if you're a fan. But one of the things that made me think of it and connected to this was what his mother thought he was up to and the track he was on in the early years versus what he was actually doing. Hustling on Fulton Street. Carlo walks in with his son. Also Jason, that's actor Joe Perino. He was one of the young boys in Sleepers, Young Shakes, who then became Jason Patrick as an adult. Great movie. De Niro, Kevin Bacon, Billy Crudup, Brad Pitt, Minnie Driver, Dustin Hoffman as that lawyer. Forget about it. Patsy's Jason, by the way, was played by Michael Dreyer. If you roamed the world of Mr. Robot, you saw him there most recently. Carlo, we learn, 
just had a root canal. Half of his face isn't moving. Tony noticed. Says he's got something for tea in the back. Likely an envelope. But why not just hand it to him right there? Why the fucking suspense? He wired up. Notice how he pats his chest before walking past. Trying to capture rich audio to take back to the mothership? Was he even really at the dentist? Was that code for FBI field office? I checked the map, because that's how Pada Bing rolls. And there are a couple three dentists scattered around the field office in Newark. So that's a good cover. Tony hangs out to talk to the future of America. This as Supermassive Black Hole by Muse comes on. How's Rutgers, he asks. He learns they're majoring in cash, minoring in ass. Anyone else ever wonder why they're kicking up to their dads? It's doubtful they're both going to crew up. At least not based on the trajectory their dads are saying they're on. Perhaps Patsy's covering them, extending the enterprise to college kids and effectively employing the boys to run bookie. Easier access, relatability, the power of delegation. Tony starts to say how things have changed since he did a semester and a half at Seton Hall. Dipping his toe, but not outright swimming in, remember when is the lowest form of conversation, waters. Before moving on, <sighs> the melancholic rock of Muse. What a time capsule. Starlight, time is running out, supermassive black hole, of course, all got massive rotation for a significant period of my life. Loved the falsetto vocals, the creative use of synths between the space of the beats, all of it. Some of the vocals were like Jeff Buckley, but with a faster decay. Starlight especially stands out in my mind right now. Our hopes and expectations. Black holes and revelations. They ask about AJ. Tony brightens up, figuring maybe these guys can hang out with him and get him out of his slump. He makes it seem like breaking up with Blanca was AJ's idea, not hers. Like that he protected his son's honor, his public persona, as son of the boss kind of thing. They go nuts over a stripper stunt. Muse shines for a moment. Then Tony asks about a frat party they booked there next week. Says they should call AJ. He's probably busy, but I'm sure he'd love to see you guys. Again, keeping that elite level intact. You guys should be so lucky. Cut to Polly's place. Door banging. Safe to say it's not an angry neighbor upset about the fresh beats pulsating through a shared wall. But the camera tracks Polly as he approaches the door. It's Christopher. He announces himself. But love how Polly still has to look through every edge of the eye hole to make sure it's him. And perhaps only him. The fuck, Polly? Father-in-law's all bent out of shape. Got Kelly worked up too. They get into it about the tools. Like old times. Like all times. 
a whitecaps light storm of their very own is taking form. Gotta say, it's a miracle at this point that these two guys haven't torn each other apart yet. Chris wants his money, but leaves empty-handed. Slams one door, cut to slamming another. This time in his full military regalia. A tracksuit. Syl and Bobby and Tony are in the middle of evaluating something big. Looks that way, at least. Some paperwork on the MRI thing. Nicely setting up the juxtaposition of their business with Christopher's. Chris says it can't wait, this fucking Polly. Bobby, not Tony, Bobby asks, what happened? And Chris looks at him like that isn't his thing to say. His version of that look Johnny Sack gave him not too long ago. You know, the you used to wait in the car look. Somewhere in his mind thinking, how the fuck and when the fuck did you become my replacement? So quiet for a beat, you can hear a car outside whiz by. He tells T how Paulie robbed his father-in-law's store. But kind of not really because Al came and stopped them. Even though Jason did close the door in the van full of contraband right in front of him. Remember, why make a problem when there isn't one? Could be interpreted as a microaggressive death threat. Chris is just about to buttress his argument, perhaps with Al's acid reflux, among other things. But Tony cuts him off. Says it doesn't equate to the level of the multi-million dollar conversation they were having before he interrupted them. Tells Chris to go get a lime Ricky while they talk, and he'll be with him when he's done. That's named after Colonel Joe Ricky, by the way. And that drink and reference also appear in The Great Gatsby and another American cultural icon, The Simpsons. Though there, Barney, like Tony, would never drink one of those. It was Mr. Burns instead. And definitely Smithers. Chris storms out again, empty-handed, about to do the only thing left to do. Take matters into his own hands. Quite literally. Later in bed, T's asleep, and Carm's reading Rebel in Chief by Fred Barnes about George W. Bush. A favorable biography of the former president. The author was a host of a Fox show called The Beltway Boys. (laughs) A close runner-up to the names for this podcast when I was kicking them around. Meadow comes in, needs to talk to them. Her hair, by the way, as good as it's ever been on the show. Tony thinks it's about Finn. Meadow? What? No, it's not about me. The way she said what? Chip off the old block. She's worried about AJ. Likens what's going on with him to what happened to a girl at school named Hadley who threw herself off a balcony. Tony's probably thinking in his head, first Caitlin, now somebody named Hadley? Is everybody over there at Columbia out of their minds? Mind me again why we're paying for you to go there again? He's been saying weird shit, as she puts it. Clinical speak for slap a tracking device on the kid. Moments later, Tony goes down to see AJ. 
He's watching Annapolis on the couch. Some connectivity. The cinematography for that film was done by Phil Abraham. It's about the Naval Academy in Annapolis. But they couldn't get access to the campus, so they filmed it in Philly. A better title, if you ask me. It could have actually helped at the box office. Should have consulted with J.T. Dolan on the title, is all I'm saying. Now, the frame of Tony coming down, the two lit windows on the staircase behind him, enhance the shadow of his silhouette. Almost kind of reminds you of the mysterious woman in the staircase looking down, the one from his dream. He simply sits down next to AJ and watches, maybe hoping some kind of osmosis occurs and gives AJ a jolt, or maybe hoping he can get his hands on the remote to change the channel. The next day, the statue, the waiting room, therapy, reminding us we're about to start the series over again in the not-too-distant future. Also, how much time has elapsed since we saw Tony in the pilot to this moment? The age, the size, the style. We see a shot of Tony looking at it intently. Much different than the Tony who gazed upon it back in 1998 or 99 or whatever the fuck. Even the way she opens her door to receive him is reminiscent to the opening scene of the series. Less her initial unbridled enthusiasm at the specter of a new patient. That pays cash. If you don't write checks, how do you pay these guys? Straight cash, homie. (laughs) (laughs) He's there to tell her he's done. The cut to her looking on, unmoved. I gave it a lot of thought, and I decided once and for all that I'm done. The truth is, this therapy is a jerk-off. You know it, and I know it. I actually don't know it, but please continue. It's a jerk-off. Yes, you've said that. Says his plan was to come there and quit. But guess what? My son is talking suicide. So now I'm trapped here forever. Like he's in his own version of what dreams may come. She offers a referral for AJ. But T says Carm's on it with his pediatrician. Melfi? Oh, (laughs) love that. Bristling a little bit that her turf has been encroached. T explains, after that incompetent you send Meadow to, remember the one that told her to move to Barcelona? No show, I believe. Again, the cut right back to her, acknowledging, but picking her battles, if you can even call it that in this context. He readies for what he calls her inherent fucking grilling. Feels like he meant to say another word than inherent there but it's multisyllabic and blends in well with the other words that swirl around in there, so it lands. Maybe impending? Imminent? Fucking Merriam-Webster over here. Gotta say, there's a bit of a different dynamism in the room 
a certain pace, energy, more cuts, but equally effective lingers and beats. Winter wrote and directed this episode, and I feel as though he interpreted this environment with Melfi true to the show, but was also able to brilliantly convey an interpretation all his own. A variation on a theme that becomes its own song almost. Then, T complains about the other men who have kids his age and how well they're doing. Happy, ambitious, taking life as it comes. Play it as it lays. Joan Didion over here. Then, Melfi with some choice, advice, and perspective. I know it seems that way, but do you really know these other boys? He says he knows what he sees. His son curled up in a fetus position when he should be out banging co-eds. Love that sentence construction for some reason. And not just because of the malaprop of fetus instead of fetal. It's just a sentence that stands alone like a planet in a solar system or something. T, obviously I'm prone to depression. A certain bleak attitude about the world. But I know I can handle it. AJ, he's not so sure about. He gets emotional. Your kids, though, the way he cinches his lips and breathes through his teeth, and the way that coincides with the welling of his eyes. His transformation over a period of about 30 seconds. The camera's on him the whole time. That's game-recognizing game. The space within the beat. It's like when they're little and they get sick. You'd give anything in the world to trade places with them so they don't have to suffer. And then they think you're the cause of it. Melfi asks how he's the cause of it perhaps steering him toward a tough conversation about his own life choices. But once again, he finds refuge in the past. It's in his blood. This miserable fucking existence. My rotten fucking putrid genes have infected my kid's soul. That's my gift to my son. Right there. Besides the hypocrisy of blaming shit on genes like Chris did earlier, this feels a little like Tony internalizing what Chris said about his dad while grilling. And also a little bit of T wondering if that's how he'll be remembered by his son. Not as a junkie, but as someone unworthy. Someone equivalent to Dickie. Maybe that's why he was speechless then. And it feels like that's why it's breaking him down like Evander Holyfield now. Melfi does the best thing she could do in the moment. This moment. Stay silent. Then, seeing a hole in the defense, she head fakes and drives to the basket. I'm really glad we're having this conversation. 
Tony, momentarily stunned by the silence, recovers to meet her at the rim for a chase down block that would make Matumbo shiver. I hate this fucking shit. Seriously, we're, we're, we're both adults here, right? So, after all the shit had done, after all the complaining and the crying and all the fucking bullshit, is this all there is? Is this all there is? Wow. As you get older, you find that one just hits different. Like, yeah, you did all that. And now what? What's the end result? Tony expressing to us and for us that the end goal of achieving the milestones of acceptance and awareness to supposedly give you a clean slate to build on or rebuild on, most times, just fucking sucks. Cut to Chris at another meeting. Work in the program. He agrees with the sales guy, Stan, about his enabler boss. Then goes off on a diatribe on T. Certainly not thrilled about not getting his way on the Pauly thing. But also rancor, building since the pilot, taking full form. Like that Marvel character who found all those stones and fused them together and became as egregious as one can become. Cut to AJ channel surfing in the media room. No signs of any NBA on TNT, otherwise the choice pretty much makes itself. T comes in, sits down. The sounds on the screen are seemingly random. I tried to find a pattern or a sequence in what he was scrolling through. Real Matrix type shit. But nada. Until T has him stop on a raging fire. Something interesting about stopping to watch something burn, right? Some John Wayne movie. Hellfighters, 1968. Like Annapolis, not really that well regarded. Made me wonder if this was Winter once again being self-deprecating and remembering his less than optimal outing with Get Rich or Die Tryin'. T finds out that Jason Jervisy called, but AJ didn't call him back. Always thought it was Gervaisi, until the show corrected us here. T says he's going to the party, and it's not up for debate. Like when Kobe told Pau Gasol to put his big boy pants on and adjust. Then we hear a prescient thing on the TV. Just how long before they'll attempt to blow this fire out. They won't try to kill it until they're ready to cap the well. I heard that as T and Carm opting not to overreact to AJ. Just yet. An extension of little Polly's words earlier. Don't make a problem where there isn't one. Cut to Chris and the sales guy Stan getting to know each other. Give, 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 it's all I ever do. Chris prattling on about adult decisions he made to get to this point. I mean, grab a copy of the four agreements and the tools and get on with it already. Put your big boy pants on. 
He brings up the Adriana situation without naming any names and says he thinks that's when the relationship between him and T got poisoned. But they both did what they did to save their own asses. He as much as T. Yet what he wants is appreciation from Tony for that. For turning her in. For offering up a sacrifice to the gods of this thing of ours. For siding with him. But again, he signed on the dotted line. Now he's combing through his lease to find an out. Even a child, we see, changes nothing. Not for him. In fairness, though, you can see how it's more the rule than the exception. The tendency to revert to the mean. Production note, they're sitting in a stairwell. The show and stairwells. From cautionary hazard signs in Livia, to employee of the month in Melfi, to Ralphie and Janice, to Kevin Finnerty. Even the Tom and Jerry episode AJ was watching earlier. It took place on a set of stairs. Now, I might have missed one, but those pop out. And it's late in the day and I haven't eaten yet. So I'm feeling a little like Pauly in Pine Barrens. Fast cut on the word poisoned to Chris's father-in-law. Hmm. Could that be a suggestive, foreshadowy cut? Why, of course it could. He's happily leaving the store. Little Polly and Jason are watching from afar. When he leaves, they enter. We hear a bell. And the camera is pointing at the doorway, buried someplace inside an aisle. You're immediately thinking, somebody's about to die. That's the show. The regularness of life is the ultimate canvas for maximal, instantaneous carnage. They go to the old man, Mike, who helps run the place. That's actor Nolan Carley. They announce they're there for the drills. Mike plays dumb. Says he doesn't know anything about any drills. After this fucking guy, Polly says to call Kelly's dad. Jason dials all ones, says it's voicemail. Polly takes the phone, leaves a message, sticks one finger in an ear for good measure, you know, because it was so loud in there and all. Says he's taking the drills and he'll call him later. Mike just stares, shrugs, lets him pass. A lot of work for a guy they could have just shoved off to the side, but again, why make a problem where there isn't one? Cut to AJ in therapy. An analyst who looks even sadder than AJ at first glance. Dr. Vogel, played by Michael Countryman, who we've seen more recently in stuff like The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, Billions, also had a run on Boardwalk Empire, and John Adams, which, after watching Raul Peck's astonishing Exterminate All the Brutes, has me questioning everything about that series now. Nice color palette in his space, though. Soothing oceanic blue upper half with an earthy rust below. He asks what he thinks happened to the relationship. AJ dances around for a second, but then links it to money. They have a lot, and she doesn't. And that scared her. He makes it her problem, not his. 
it couldn't possibly be his fault that she left him. I think that's interesting only to the extent that it reveals a certain level of confidence and self-esteem that AJ still has someplace inside him. A more broken person might immediately attribute any fallout to their own shortcomings. Self-blame. Doc asks about suicide. In the right way, by the way. So far, checking all the boxes on the how to get a five-star review on health grades worksheet. He also brings up Lexapro, AJ's familiar, not via his dad, of course, but via his friends. Well, I'm going to write you a prescription, Doc says. And so begins that journey. The hard cut to the party is perfect there. There's something about it. Three minutes in, yep, candidate for Lexapro. We out. Next patient, please. Guy's more clinical than a seasoned crisis line hotline shift supervisor. Assess the risk, triage, offer up an action plan, click. Cut to the bing, the frat party. Loving the matter of fact cuts this episode. Again, back to that movement and pace. The roller coaster is taking one of those whipsaw turns into the final stages of this ride. Patsy's son is telling AJ to get into sports betting, but he's timid about it. Curiously complains about his SAT score in math. Even says what it is. Usually you only do that when you crush it. But Jason P is confident AJ can get a handle on it. In a very, if we can do it, you can do it kind of way. Rob Schneider over here. Just then a stripper comes over and wants to dance for him. He reluctantly allows it, but looks away and dispassionately. The exact opposite of the way the two Jasons looked at the same girl a few scenes ago, by the way. AJ's just passing the time through the big nothing. Cut to an exterior of someplace on a corner with a lone light on up above. A new establishing shot. Something's going down. Literally. And it looks like a long way. Upstairs, it's a card game. Benny, little Polly, going at each other a little. The camera reveals the other guys at the table in their shitty hands. Who knows? If Polly and Benny knew, their moods might be different. Little Polly goes all in, like Chamath Polyhapatia and his friends on my favorite new podcast. Note the picture of a tiger behind his head. Something about that stood out to me. If only he'd had the eye of the tiger, the peripheral vision in this moment. He might have got a jump on it. It's not like he was up against Rocky Marciano. Just then, Chris comes in and slugs him. You were my friend. What's this, Etu Brute now? Tortured scribe mythologizing his inner narrative again? Goes at him hard. Then throws him out the window. Almost 10 years of pent-up job frustration. Michael Douglas and falling downs got nothing on him. See, I knew there was something different about the pacing of this episode. Little Paulie lands on his back, surrounded by glass, for the third time in the series, by the way. And Shocker doesn't die. 
my estimation of him as a man went sky high. Between that and what Ponte Corvo did to him, at this point, this guy could outlive Superman. After this, he officially earned a new name in my book. Not Little Polly. Lil Polly. Cut to Tony asleep in bed again. Different angle. The tattoo that I imagine we'll see him get in Many Saints is on full display. That's three times this episode already, though. Him in bed, that is. I know. Karnak the Great over here. Carmelo storms in. Tony, wake up. I need to talk to you. You let our underage son go to a party at a strip club? What time is it? She just going through the motions because all that is the right thing to say? Or is there really a reality distortion field around her? And who her husband is? The business interests he has? And the statistical odds on a couple, two or three outcomes for her kid at this point? Funny thing is, he's almost 21. Yet she's pissed. To cite Pink Floyd's discography again, tease on thin ice. But Tony says this is the way back. Decent basketball movie, by the way. He says it's how it's supposed to be. The first suggestion, however subtle, that he could be an heir apparent. The true heir apparent. This is the way back. It's how it's supposed to be. It's the speaking in absolute terms like that that crystallize it for me. At least that he's contemplating it, but tucking it away behind the next line and the way back to college. That's the placate karm. But the, if I can just teach him what I know, who I am, he might fully appreciate and realize what he's capable of, his potential. Carmela had to have known it was at least a possibility when she first hooked up with Tony. Not saying it's going to happen or that there's anything there. Just that the scenario crossed my mind based on the language. From the mental picture Tony gives us of fraternities and frat boys, we cut to Pauly. Signature inflamed face, accelerating hard in his Coupe de Ville. Or he might have upgraded to a newer CTS at this point. We haven't seen the outside of it yet. The reflection of the trees outside almost make him look reptilian. Something's happening, and it's got to be in response to little Polly. Next, Chris walks in the T's office at Satriel's. The sideways sign against the wall. Things should be an NFT. Nice touch. He admits that what he did was stupid. T says six broken vertebrae. And all the while, I'm thinking... That's it? Guy should be dead. A part of me died just watching it happen. And just after T says the word vertebrae, we're back on Polly, pulling up on top of Chris's lawn, snapping a small tree in half, complete with the sound effect to reenact the snapping of vertebrae, and going to work. He's like Bob Ross out there. Only difference, his car's the paintbrush, and Chris's lawn, his canvas. Tell me something, has there ever been a better lawn job captured on camera? 
send me a better one. Also, really great decision to cross-cut back and forth between Chris and Pauly, by the way. For Chris, it's the second fucking time Pauly flouted his authority to his face. And there won't be a third. Hence the message to little Pauly. But T kind of takes Pauly's side. If you were around more, problems like this would be squashed in the womb. Awkward, but yeah, we get it. Makes you wonder what Senator Sanatorium would have to say about that, though. Chris says he could have left me a message. We could have worked something out. But T blows back. We're supposed to leave messages about interstate hijacking now? What about emails, faxes? Final verdict? He'll get the money back for his tools, less whatever he's going to owe for little Polly's hospital bills. To which Chris stares blankly. Might he go nuclear on Tony this episode? The writing is on the wall after what he just did to little Polly. Cut to later, T getting driven around. His phone rings. It's Chris. Cameras shaking all around him, trying to keep up. He tore up my lawn, Tone. The baby's crying. 40 grand in landscaping. At which point you might be thinking, did Sal Vitro get that job? Or he gonna get to fix what Polly did? Chris continues, he terrorized my wife and daughter. But says he's gonna stay cool for T. Gives a little speech about how he must be loyal to his capo, and that's it clicks, and gives a little shrug of the shoulder for good measure. A last bit of energy that needed to be released in the moment. But Tony's dubious. Remember, he knows all too well about off-the-reservation cocksuckers. And we cut to a frat party. DKE. The song. Is that Luda? Sounds like it for a sec. The crunkness of it at least but it's ying yang and lil john in salt shaker inside aj and friends are talking the 99 mets braves nl championship what could have led to a subway series but the braves won four to two it got swept by the yankees in the fall classic the subway series though wouldn't have to wait long it happened the following year The Yankees won that one, too. Now, A-Rod wasn't on that team. He didn't arrive until later. But I saw a hilarious clip of the T-Wolves' number one pick, Anthony Edwards, who said he had no idea who Alex Rodriguez was. He just recently, by the way, became the face of the ownership group that is buying the Timberwolves franchise. Anyway, I thought the comparison of their respective places in life might be instructive here. In defense of Edwards' gaffe if you can even really call it that. In 2000, a year before Edwards was even born, A-Rod was into his seventh season in the bigs. Had been to four All-Star games, was at the precipice of his best three-year streak of hitting in his career, and was consistently coming in the top three in MVP voting. Like Edwards, he too was a first-round pick. Safe to say both would pass Junior's litmus test. They had the makings, and then some. But the lesson here, even if you have the makings, after a while, 
Nobody knows and nobody cares. You're only as good as your last envelope. Okay, back over to the frat party. A guy called Victor comes over, wants to place a bet with the two Jasons, but he wants them to cover it. They're not having it. Say they're not a bank, and that if he doesn't settle up soon, AJ Soprano's dad might have to get involved. By implication. Speaking of, cut to AJ's dad, lumbering down the steps. AJ didn't come home that night. He and Carm are happy. Apparently he stayed out, played cards with his friends. And we're reminded, of course, of the last time he was out with his friends in the city. Remember when he was supposed to go to Meadows afterward? The eyebrows, the poppers. Looks like the meds are working. And Carm's simply glad he's not laying around like a miserable. One of those in the house is enough for her. Then a fast cut to Carlos singing Walmart's praises. Another one of these cuts, and this is a full-blown Guy Ritchie picture. Anyway, Walmart. They apparently fight against tightening the ports. So it's because of them that their shit slips right through the cracks. Chris was talking about enablers earlier. There's your fucking enabler. Then, speak of the devil, Chris comes in. Beelines for Tony and Sill, hands T an envelope. Says he did what he was told, calls Salvitro, who's going to come and resod the lawn. He did get the gig. Wait, he's going to get paid for that, right? T says he worked out a payment schedule with Pauly, who Chris heads over to see. After taking a deep breath, centering himself. Pauly sizes him up with the same look and gesture as the day he made him strip down and said, I guess you could call that a dick. The song while they're talking is Mood Indigo by Keely Smith, a jazz singer, beautiful voice, more Mad Men than Sopranos in terms of vibe. Also note, while they're chatting, behind Christopher, Patsy's got his arms wrapped around two women, enjoying one after the other. Somewhat of a plus factor in the camp of people who think he's got bigger ambitions or bigger plans in terms of avenging his brother's death. Playing the long game. Pauly stops Chris in his tracks. Shit happens. There's no point in ruminating. A page out of T's book, perhaps. Remember when is the lowest form of conversation. And a great go-to line for all those, hey man, haven't seen you in over a year, conversations we're all slowly starting to have. They both apologize and then drink to it. For real this time. Yes, Chris opts for the fully fermented beverage. Then cut back to AJ with his new friends, doing shots shouting Zeke, Zeke, Zeke as they bottoms up. No doubt a fraternity battle cry, I figured. Patsy's Jason gets a call. Here's that Victor's at some party. Donna Amato's. How about a limited series to compete with Generation or some shit centered around Donna Amato's house parties back in the early aughts? Jason Jervisy calls him a Welshian little prick. That's an offensive term for someone who fails to repay a debt specifically for bets. Comes from early hostilities and mistrust toward Welsh people 
by the British. At Donna's, they corner Victor, who's in the middle of telling some girls about his plan to transfer to Syracuse for what he calls a better business education, but also maybe his own form of proactive witness protection, especially after tonight. This party soundtrack, Cypress Hills, Hand on the Pump, they grab him, escort him out to AJ's car, essentially kidnapping him. AJ hops in and drives away. They take him to a park and beat the shit out of him. AJ helps hold him down. All of this is injecting some kind of new life into him, even if it's just a momentary distraction. The Jasons decide they want to do a science experiment, mixing sulfuric acid with toe jam. What sick fox? Toe jam, by the way, is the non-medical term for gunk between your toes. Also, who has sulfuric acid on their person like that randomly? It just happened to be in AJ's car, too? Did they boost it from a campus chem lab? Another Jesse Pinkman in the making? AJ watches on sadistically. Is he into it? Or is he horrified? Maybe a little bit of both. Back on Chris. The cuts between AJ and Chris are interesting, by the way. Chris is blitzed. Trying to explain to Polly and anyone else who will listen. The miracle of fatherhood. Looking at your kid and having them look back at you. He's not making sense, so he drinks harder. He's about as coherent and thoughtful as that time on the couch with Adriana after Livia's funeral. Polly breaks his balls. How the fuck do I put myself up for adoption? One of Polly's low-key skills, his ability to shine a light on any party or group table he's a part of. Many laugh. You see where this is going. Paulie caused him to drink again. At least that's who he'll blame it on. And this time it won't end well. Paulie makes an off-color remark about Caitlin working at the Bing instead of going to college. Chris's daughter. That one hits a little different when you're a parent. He takes it too far in my mind. But it's Chris and they have history. Even still, women and children, off limits, on every level. Either it has meaning or no meaning. With that, Chris stumbles out. But not before a slow motion sequence reminiscent of everybody laughing around Tony at a card game. Everyone except Feech Lamana. He says it's late and has to go. Can't walk or stand up for himself like a man in that room. He crumbles under the weight. And all it took was Paulie's words. Words can be bullets, too. Speaking of bullets, he goes to JT's. It's 11.30, an instant signal that this won't end well. He's crying, says he's fucking losing it. JT explains he's working on a deadline for law and order. Maybe working on an episode Imperioli would later do after his run here. JT says he's going to make coffee and call his sponsor. In other words, attempt to move Chris along. He's somebody else's problem now. But Chris says he's away. Philly or some shit. The fuck else would I come here for? 
Says he doesn't want coffee. Calls it an urban myth. He's teary and pouty. But he's right. The only real way to avoid a bad hangover is to drink very little. The things that caffeine does to your blood vessels and blood pressure actually make hangovers worse, not better. My go-to remedy was always breakfast at a greasy spoon. But turns out that's a myth too. How could this happen? So what about a greasy breakfast and coffee together? Well, as we learn through political discourse, two myths don't make a fact. Chris says he's got better stories than the shit he's writing for Law and Order. Says he's got stories that would make his head curl. Note the malaprop. As the saying is, make your hair curl. JT pushes for him to go to a meeting. This isn't chit-chat hour over here for him. Guy's on a deadline. Work the program. Of course, referring to the 12 steps. That, among other things, is not only getting sober, but staying sober and actively engaging in the community as opposed to merely showing up at meetings. Chris calls him a robot. You got any fucking emotion in there? Takes one to no one, right? Also, the human tendency to redirect your own shit on somebody else. I don't know. JT was pretty emotional when he lost his car in a bust out. Chris says his friends have abandoned him. Me, me, me. After he just said to Stan how he's always give, give, give. He's been ostracized as opposed to ostracized. At this point, start taking bets on whether he could go for the malaprop hat trick in one scene. Cristiano Ronaldo Moltisanti over here. JT plainly attributes it to him being unpleasant to be around when he's drinking and using. My heart's fucking breaking and you're blowing me off? Complete with hand gestures of the Gary Oldman and Bram Stoker's Dracula variety. In a last-ditch effort to squeeze whatever empathy juice he can out of JT, he brings up his dad again. You know my father fucking abandoned me? To which JT deadpans, I thought he was shot. He doesn't know it yet, but in a way, he kind of pulled the trigger on himself right there. The pushback, the resistance, is what Chris can't stand. Tony won't listen to him. Paulie won't listen to him. A whole room of wise guys or wannabe wise guys just laughed at him. Somebody's gonna listen. Somebody's gonna pay. And he's gonna settle the score the best way he knows how. Chris says he could bring the whole castle down like Humpty Dumpty with one phone call, which always got me wondering, to whom exactly? Harris? Seriously? Besides, he's got him on email Kolar and that crooked copy coaxed into killing. Hey, do? If we're getting tactical about it and all. Tony's got a couple of few calls he could put in too. Even though he's the bigger fish and whatnot, he's insulated insofar as he didn't pull any triggers. Not that Chris knows about anyway. And what are we, in preschool now? Couldn't he come up with a better analogy to a seasoned television writer than Humpty Dumpty? A sign, perhaps, that 
he's been spending at least some time around his daughter. That or more time with Bobby. One of the two, at least. He starts to tread down the path of telling JT about the Adriana thing and then the Ralphie thing, but JT pushes back. Doesn't want any part of that taint. Guilt by association. Chris, you're in the mafia. Remember, people tend not to like hearing what they are from people they know. And Chris takes it to a whole other level. Again, in a way, really only he can. Fine. He turns around to leave, then shoots him. Great millisecond where JT realizes what's happening. Chris exits, careful not to leave any traces. Even in his drunken stupor, he's still a professional. At his craft, as cold-blooded killer with a multi-decades-long writer's block. How's that for a writing prompt? Before moving on, one final observation. He's completed the trifecta of conversations with people immediately before killing them. Email, Barry, and now JT. Cut to T pulling up late at night listening to Tom Sawyer by Rush, 1981. Ah, the music this episode. 80s music wouldn't be 80s music without that song. He hears a car ripping up the road, jumps back in the car to grab a fucking rifle out of his center console, like a rabbit out of a hat. But he quickly puts it away when he realizes it's AJ. The shift from menace to affectionate father is striking. Inside, Meadow and Karm are having a late-night snack after watching Rachel Ray on Leno. A couple of cultural blasts from the past. Meadow, we learn, had a mystery date. They met for coffee. AJ absorbs it, maybe even thinking of that couple at Beansy's Pizza for a beat, but holds it together. Even makes a joke. They all enjoy wine and think, believe, hope. AJ's out of the woods. Turned the corner. Finally, cut to Chris, stumbling to his front door. The song, The Valley, by Los Lobos, The Wolves, off their 2006 album, The Town and the City. Incidentally, their 12th studio album. Beautiful cover art, too. He replants a fallen tree and walks inside. Thought that was symbolic. He's a fallen tree that keeps sprouting back up. Gets mowed over, largely self-inflicted, but keeps growing back. Never firmly rooted, though, in one thing. One day it's this thing of ours. Another day it's Hollywood. Another day it's his family. The ultimate takeaway from the visual here is that he's on an island like Tom Hanks in Castaway. But almost worse off in that there's no escape. Whatever raft he throws out into the water never holds up. The show cuts to black on the lyric, work through the day 
for as long as we are able. This episode worked elegantly through the plainness and paradoxes of fathers and sons, mentors and mentees, employers and employees, therapists and patients, generosity and greed, and to quote Muse again from earlier, our hopes and expectations. Man, they wrote the shit out of this episode. Bravo. And that song choice, The Valley. We're all in it at some point or other. In the end, you know, before we come to Livia's realization that it's all a big nothing, it's peaks and valleys. It's nice to know we've got this perpetual peak called the Sopranos in our rearview mirrors. That's all I got. Thanks for listening. See you next time.